Patrick's father was a priest, and his grandfather was a deacon. And so he had a very religious upbringing. And yet, he was never particularly devout himself. In later life, he wrote that as a young man, he'd essentially renounced his faith. One day when he was about 16 years old, he was out working in his father's fields when Irish militia suddenly came upon them. They were on a raid, and they captured Patrick, and they took him back as a captive, and they enslaved him in Ireland. He worked there as a herdsman for six years. And finally, after six years, he saw an escape opportunity, and he stowed away on a ship, and he made his way back about 200 miles back to his uh, family's land. But ultimately, he decided to follow in his family's footsteps, because you see, during that six years, he'd become interested in his faith. It had awakened within him. He'd spent a lot of time praying. And so he entered into the work of the church himself. Eventually, he became a bishop, and then he became a missionary to that country where he had been enslaved, and he was the man primarily responsible for bringing Christianity to Ireland. And there are a number of legends about Patrick. One states that he drove all the snakes away from Ireland, which is why there are no snakes there. I don't know about that, but it makes Ireland seem like an attractive place to visit to me. Another states that he used a simple illustration in order to teach the truth of the Trinity or the Godhead, that is, the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He used a three-leaf clover or a shamrock to illustrate that because the shamrock has the three leaves and yet all one clover, three distinct parts and yet all one whole. So in just that same way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make up the one God. And supposedly, through that illustration, he convinced a, a great many people, and a number were converted on account of that. And so St. Patrick's Day is supposed to be a day to celebrate not only the life of Patrick himself, who died on March 17th, but also to celebrate the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. Now, we would no doubt disagree with a great deal of what Patrick taught specifically. But I think we have to admire his success. Because here's a man who encountered a great deal of opposition. There was the possibility of imprisonment, of beatings. He had to go to a people and forgive a people that had been responsible for capturing him and enslaving him. And Ireland was a place where others had tried before for centuries and had failed. Now, we're not all missionaries. And I don't expect that any of us here is very likely to be responsible for bringing Christianity to a, a country that's rejected it for such a long period of time. But my point in telling you a little bit about Patrick is that we are all similarly responsible for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us. Before his ascension, Jesus gave his disciples a very important mission, and it's so important that it's actually recorded five different times at five different places in the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. 
Matthew records it this way in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This mission is our mission. This mission isn't just for preachers. It isn't just for missionaries. This mission is for the church as a whole, and it's for each and every one of us individually. And this mission isn't optional. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is mandatory. You need to be going out and making disciples. Notice here, when we look at the text the Greek verb that's translated here as go, that's not actually an imperative. It's not actually a command in the Greek. It's a present participle. That means that if we were to translate it literally, it'd be something more like going. The only command, the only imperative in these verses is actually to make disciples. So Jesus isn't actually telling us to go out and travel the world. That's not the point. The point essentially is as you're going, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, make disciples. That's the thrust of this verse. No matter where we go, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, we can do that. And in fact, we must do that if we're going to be obedient to this great commission. But even with that said, even though we all have the same faith in Jesus, even though we all have that same responsibility to share our faith in Jesus, we don't always do that in the same way. So we might ask, what are some ways that we can go about doing that? How can we share our faith with others? And I want to suggest to us just three ways this morning that we might go about telling others about Jesus. And since we already used that illustration of the shamrock, we might think of these as our three leaves of our shamrock, as it were. And with these three things, we can tell other people about Jesus in in just about any situation that we encounter. So since we've already mentioned Patrick, let's begin first of all this morning with the approach that he used, the intellectual approach. Patrick was in a situation where he had to reason with the people of Ireland. He had to convince them. He had to persuade them logically. They were pagans, and not only that, they were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Patrick had to convince them that there was a God, not just a God, but there was one God. And in fact, this one God existed in those three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And his weapon of choice in doing that, as we said, was the shamrock. That's how he illustrated it. But this was a battle waged in their minds. He used logic. He used reason as his tools. Well, when we use a logical or we use empirical arguments to demonstrate the existence of God or to prove the possibility of the resurrection of Christ or to demonstrate the reliability of the Scriptures or or anything else we might lump in with those things. That's called apologetics. That's a word a lot of us probably know. And that literally means to make a defense. So in other words, we're presenting logical, rational reasons for why we believe what we believe. 
And that's something that all of us on at least some level need to be able to do. We're called, in fact, to be able to do that. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know, there are a number of skeptics in our contemporary society who will say that faith and reason, those things are, are mutually exclusive. They're incompatible. You have to throw logic out the window if you're going to be a Christian. But that's not actually the case. Our faith is rooted in historical fact, in logical argument. We can show that it is reasonable to be a Christian, and we can use this intellectual approach. Just as an example, let's say someone asks you, why do you believe in God? How can you logically demonstrate the existence of God? Well, I might try to answer that something like this. First of all, some things exist. We would all agree to that, wouldn't we? Some things undeniably exist. After all, I can't deny my own existence without affirming it because somebody's got to be doing the denying. So some things exist. That's incontrovertible. But secondly, it's not necessary that I exist. That is, while I do exist, we can all imagine a world in which I didn't exist, right? A lot of you here this morning were alive before I came into existence. The world was still here. And you know what? One day I'm going to cease to exist, and it's going to just keep spinning round and round as if I were never here. So while I exist, it is not necessary that I exist. A necessary being is one that its non-existence is an impossibility. And we could say a lot of things about a necessary being. But among other things, a necessary being would be eternal. That is, it would be impossible for there to have been a time when that necessary being did not exist because his existence is required. So he must have always existed past and future. A necessary being would also be an uncaused being because if he were caused to exist, there would have been a time when he didn't exist and therefore he wouldn't be necessary. Now, a necessary being can't cause himself. That is illogical. You can't be the cause of your own existence. And so therefore, if he was not caused and if he did not cause himself, a necessary being must be uncaused. Well, whatever has the possibility, third, the possibility to not exist, like me or like you, that has to be caused by another, right? I'm not self-caused. I'm not uncaused. Something else caused me to exist. And you know what? Fourth, if we go on back down the line, something caused that and something caused that and something caused that. But there can't be an infinite regress of causes. You can't have that on the way on back down the line. Something had to have started that series of causes off. Unless we state that that series is sufficient in itself to cause itself, which is logically impossible, then there must be something outside that series of causes that caused it to exist. Therefore, a first uncaused cause of my existence exists. Now, I know that sounds complicated, but just think your way through that. If I undeniably exist, and I do, and if my existence isn't necessary, and it's not, then there must be some 
necessary cause on back down the line that caused me and you and all of this to exist. See, the first cause of existence can't be contingent like you and me. It has to be necessary. It has to be uncaused. And so this uncaused cause, this necessary being, this eternal being, is what we call God. Therefore, God exists. Now, that's a thumbnail sketch of the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And I think that we can see that's not something we're likely to be using very often. All right, I saw everybody's faces contorted into all those different expressions while I was trying to explain my way through that. And I have to tell you that I've never had anyone come up to me and ask me if I can explain the existence of God in quite that way. But I do think it's important for us to at least be aware of the fact that, well, you can make a rational philosophical case for the existence of God. And not only for things like that, but for other things that we've talked about in past lessons here. You can make a good case based on historical evidence, among other things, for the reliability of the scriptures. You can make a good case for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. We should be able, even if we can't rattle off that argument in all of its details, to know the rudiments of these things, because there'll be a time when we need to have these intellectual conversations. But I think we can already see that this approach isn't the one that we're going to be using the most frequently. And that's okay, because I don't suggest that we should. The second method of approach, the second leaf of our shamrock, if we want to call it that, this is the invitational approach. And this is probably the most frequently used one. And this is probably the simplest and easiest one that we might use. And in fact, it's one that's modeled for us in Scripture. It's the one that Philip uses in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him famously, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. You notice, Philip doesn't argue with Nathanael. He doesn't give a reasoned defense of why he believes that Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke about. He simply says, come and see for yourself. That's something that each and every one of us is capable of doing, and that's something that each of us should be doing. Whenever we have the opportunity to tell a friend, to tell a neighbor, to tell a coworker, hey, I found Jesus. Why don't you come and see for yourself? Why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? And maybe we think that, well, that won't work. <laughs> People aren't going to come just because we invite them. Well, how do you know if you don't try? You know, sometimes all it takes is an invitation. And, and some of these statistics may surprise you, but this is according to LifeWay researchers, a uh, number of surveys they've conducted. But uh, according to their numbers, 89% of the unchurched said that they would be willing to some extent or another to discuss Christian faith with one of their believing friends. 89%. Now, not all of them are entirely comfortable with it, to be fair. But about half 
of those who said they'd discuss it, said that they'd discuss it freely, that they had no objections to doing it. Of those same unchurched, only 23% said that they felt that their believing friends talked about Christianity too much. And that tells me at least one of two things. Maybe both of these things are true, actually. One, maybe they're more receptive to it than we think they are. And in fact, that 89% number bears that out. Or two, we're probably not talking about it very much if they don't think it's too much. Probably both of those things are true. Not just among the unchurched, but among all peoples that were surveyed, 63%, that's more than half, that's almost two-thirds, 63% of people said that they would be at least somewhat likely to attend a church service if somebody they knew invited them. I found that number to be remarkable. So what I want to encourage us is let's endeavor to be that someone that invites them. Let's make a concerted effort to invite friends, neighbors, relatives, co-workers, associates. And let's do that not haphazardly, but deliberately with intentionality. You know, let's not just say, hey, why don't you come to church with me sometime? That's too vague. That gives the possibility of, it. oh, yeah, sure, that sounds good. No, be specific. Hey, why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? Or maybe let's give them some special event to shoot for. I, I think on our calendar coming up, you know, something like our uh, singing seminar that we're going to have May 3rd through 5th. Uh, you could say something that's sort of non-threatening. Hey, do you like to sing gospel songs? We're having a big singing that Saturday night. Why don't you come and, and visit with us then? And when we do that, let's put some effort into it. People don't like to go places where they might not know others. Let's offer to meet them beforehand or say that I'll buy you breakfast or let's at least meet them at the door so that we're there to greet them when they arrive. You see, my point is we don't have to get into a religious debate with someone to be able to talk to them about Jesus. Just invite them to come and see for themselves the way that Philip did. The third, final approach we want to talk about this morning is the interpersonal approach. And when I say interpersonal, all we mean there is simply sharing your own story about how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. This is something that's also eminently biblical. Paul models this for us a number of times in the book of Acts. I think of Acts chapter 22 in particular. If you remember here, uh, Paul was in the temple. He'd just undergone the days of purification when some Jews from Asia spotted him. And a riot ensued. They seized Paul. They were about to kill him when a Roman tribune intervened. And Paul begged the tribune for the opportunity to address the crown. And when they quieted down, he announced to them, Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way. He's talking about Christians. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. That's Paul's life before he met Jesus. That's the first point. Then he tells them about how he met Jesus. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And then he goes on third to explain the difference that Jesus has made in his life. And this is much of the rest of this speech. 
but you could look down to the end and see how he's changed. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I am prison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is Paul's personal testimony. And I suggest to you that we can do this very same thing. And in fact, we can follow this same outline, this same model that Paul gives us here. What my life was like before Jesus, how I came to faith in Jesus, and what difference Jesus has made in my life. That's the bare bones outline of Paul's speech here, and it's something that each of us can use. Sharing our story is an essential part of sharing our faith. We might not all be biblical scholars. We might not all be skilled apologists, but you know what? We're all the ultimate authority on our own lives. And that sort of personal testimony is very persuasive, and it's very difficult for people to take issue with it. In fact, it helps to build a bridge to people to allow the Lord to walk over. There are a lot of people who might not listen to your well-reasoned arguments about the Bible, but they'll listen to your own personal story. It's a powerful thing. Paul could obviously quote Scripture at length. Paul could argue in apologetics, and we see him doing that repeatedly. With the Jews, he reasons from the Scriptures. He goes in Acts 17 to the Areopagus in Athens, and he debates the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. He even quotes from their own poets. And yet we also find him about half a dozen separate times in Acts just telling his own personal story because that was another tool in his toolbox. We all need to share our own story, and we need to be intentional about that. Maybe write it down if that's helpful. Maybe use these same points that Paul used, these same three parts. Now, obviously, this is going to be a little bit different for all of us, those of us who were raised in a Christian home versus those of us who came to be Christians later versus those of us who maybe drifted away for a while and, and came back. But, but that's okay. That's part of the point. That's part of the power of this sort of interpersonal approach. Think about this. Write it down if that's helpful. Memorize those main points and more than anything, be willing to tell other people about it and the impact that the Lord's made in your life. It's by each of us individually practicing these different methods that we can go out and grow the kingdom of God and that we can help to reach others with the gospel of Christ, that we can help fulfill this mission that we all have. And I know it's hard. Probably a lot of us have been doing some of these things. Maybe you've had these sort of intellectual discussions with some of your coworkers or your friends. Maybe you've invited people to come to services intentionally and, and they just still don't come well Jesus even warns us that not all hearts are going to be fertile soil some people just won't respond but our responsibility is just to keep scattering the seed deliberately tirelessly knowing that if we do in some hearts it's going to take root and it's going to sprout up and it's going to bear fruit for the kingdom of God and so I encourage us to think about these three methods and to put them into practice in the various situations we encounter in our lives. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. If that's the case, I want to invite you to respond to the invitation this morning. Jesus Christ died for you to save you from sin and to reconcile you to God. And so I want to encourage you to put your trust in him, to turn to God in repentance, turn away from self, away from sin, turn to God. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Be buried with him in the waters of baptism and have your sins washed away. Be added to his people. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you haven't been fulfilling this very important aspect of our mission. Or maybe there are other aspects of your life that are out of step with God and you need to make changes in a public way today. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.